We come tonight to the last of this present series. Shall we pray before we begin? Father, I just want to testify to your faithfulness, Lord, to me during this course. Father, I know, Lord, that uh, I've put this off for some years, this particular course, because I didn't feel I was mature enough to handle such a difficult subject. But Father, I just want to testify to the fact that I've known your enabling right through this course in a most wonderful way. And Father, those subjects that I thought were easy proved to be more difficult. Those subjects that I thought were difficult proved to be gloriously simple. Father, I'm just so grateful to you for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who comes and enlightens us. Father, I would pray, Father, for all who listen to these tapes that they should realize these are some of the most important studies that they could ever wish to hear. And Father, I would pray that those inadequacies of mine will fade out of the mind and that your glory may shine through. Father, we ask tonight, because we are dependent upon you, we ask tonight that you will be the enabler, that you will be the Lord our provider tonight, and that, Father, we should find you a rich and wonderful portion. Oh, we thank you so much for being who you are. We give you praise for who you are, and we just say with our mouths tonight, we love you with all of our hearts. Thank you for loving us. We don't understand why, why you found it necessary to need our love. But the reality of it is something that just overwhelms us, and we know it's true. Father, tonight, may we enjoy this love feast gathered around your word. Oh, come and anoint and bless. Father, take over my mouth, and may it be your mouth. And take over our ears, that we should not hear words, but should hear revelation from the Holy Spirit himself. I would ask this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Before I begin tonight, dealing with the particular attribute, um, could I remind you of a very important thing that I said in one of the earlier studies, and that is that when you are dealing with the attributes, you must remember that they all come together in God. Sometimes it's terribly easy to be very clinical about them and say, yes, God is this or God is that. But in fact, all the attributes that I've dealt with thus far all dwell and have their fullness together in our wonderful Savior. And any person who tries to emphasize one attribute at the expense of any other attribute is heading for certain disaster. This is the way heresies are made to emphasize one characteristic of God and conveniently forget other characteristics. We've got to remember they all come together, and when, having studied this course, you then look at God and you see all of these attributes together, you'll suddenly find that the real God that we have begins to beam through. I suppose the type of warning I'm given, giving tonight is this, that we can study our own senses, can't we, and forget that they're sort of related in our experience. For all of us have hearing. All of us have seeing. All of us have a sense of smell, a sense of touch, a sense of taste. And you can study any one of those. But if you forget that actually in a normal human being they all come together, you are actually being unreal about it. And when we talk about the attributes of God, it's important to see that the fullness of them, all of them, is found in our God. 
Now, I did say earlier on in the course as well that, of course, God, being infinite, has an infinite number of attributes. But tonight, we have to come to the end of the attributes that we're going to study. And in fact, I'm coming to number 10. And the subject for tonight, and don't let the word put you off, is the subject of God being veracity. V-E-R-A-C-I-T-Y. Now, it's not a word you come across often, but all it means is this, that God is true. He always has been true. Everything about him is true. His words are true. He's consistently true. And you also mean that God has never lied about anything to anyone. What a wonderful characteristic it is. And as we go on tonight, you'll see that if you believe this about God, you can have peace in your life. But if you don't, if you doubt this, then in fact the promises are meaningless as far as you are concerned. By the way, I'd add a little um, rejoinder to, to this word true as well. It doesn't only mean that he's true, it means that he's true and he's always been true, which is what we call faithful. And that's why tonight's talk, on the tape anyway, is called God Faithful and True. That's lovely. Faithful means this, that when God says something will happen, he will make sure it happens. Faithful means this, that if God promises something to you, you can rely upon him because it will certainly come to pass. And if you know God is true, and if you know he's faithful, it puts the whole of your life into a different perspective. Now, I'm going to deal with this tonight in a slightly different way, because I think the fact that God is true and faithful is shown up more clearly in the subject of covenants than in any other subject. What do we mean by a covenant, by the way? Well, a covenant is simply an agreement that two parties, two people, come into with one another. And if we look at covenants in the Bible, you'll find that God is a covenant-making God who makes agreements with people. Isn't that wonderful? He makes agreements with individuals, and he makes agreements with nations. And there are two types of covenant that we have to think of. I've actually written these up so that um, they become clear to us. And the title generally given to these is this. First of all, there are conditional covenants. Now, this is the type of covenant most of us make. It's the sort of a agreement we enter into with someone, and we say, you scratch my back, and I'll scratch your back. We say to a chap, now listen, if you do this job well, if you paint my house well, I will pay you on Friday, and there'll be no problem about it. I'll write the check straight out. And he says, right, well, if you'll write the check straight out on Friday, I'll make sure I work really well this week and it will be finished by Friday. Now, that's a covenant, you see. It's conditional. However, if he doesn't finish by Friday or if he does a terrible job, I'm not going to write that check out. There's the condition that comes in. We enter into conditional covenants every single day of our life, you see. By the way, when you go and post a letter, you're entering into a covenant with the post office. You see, what you're saying is, the post office says to you, if you will buy this little bit of paper for 16p or whatever it is, and lick the back and put it on the envelope, then if you fulfill that part, we promise that if it's first class, we will deliver it within three months. Now, that's what they promise. There's the promise. Lovely. I don't know when it arrives, if it's second class, it's... Well, it's 1984 now, I suppose 1990. No, actually, it's quite good, isn't it? 85% get delivered the day after. 
Now, we also are party to that because we say, well, look, if we buy that stamp, then we believe that you will deliver that letter. And there's an agreement between the, the two parties there. Now, if a postman, however, picks up your letter and there's not a little bit of paper stuck in the corner, he doesn't have any obligation. Do you know that? He has no obligation to deliver that. Now, our post, post, offices, in good, post offices are good and kind, and they generally deliver, and they charge double the amount or something like that. But there, you are entering into a covenant. It's a conditional thing. There are conditions attached. If you will do this, then I will do that. That's what we mean by conditional covenant. But if you read your Bible carefully, there's also another type of covenant that comes up very often in the Bible. And this is an unconditional covenant. And here God makes no conditions whatsoever, but what he says is, I promise that I will do such and such. Now this is really lovely. And an unconditional covenant is actually a promise from God. It doesn't depend on what you do, it depends on what he's going to do. But notice this, whether it comes to pass or not depends on his character. If he is faithful and true, it will come to pass. If he's not, it may not come to pass, you see. Do you know that if anyone makes a promise to you, you have to do a, a judgment about their character? Well, so-and-so has promised to return my overhead projector by this time next week. Mm, I don't know whether he will. You think, I'm sure he won't, in fact. I know him pretty well. So you ring up the day before. You won't forget, will you? Oh, no, I won't forget. Then the next day comes, oh, I forgot. Now, what's happened? A flaw in his character has meant that he hasn't fulfilled his promise. God, however, and this is my contention tonight, is faithful and true, and he fulfills his promises. Can I show you two unconditional covenants in the Bible? Let's go, first of all, to Genesis chapter 8. Remember, please, that God has just sent a universal flood on the face of this earth, and every person has been destroyed except for Noah and his family. Millions upon millions of creatures have died in the flood waters that covered the earth. And in verse 20 of Genesis 8, Noah builds an altar, and after he's offered a sacrifice, God makes an unconditional covenant. Verse 20, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, now this is what he's saying, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. Notice he doesn't say here, uh, it doesn't add here a conditional clause. I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake as long as man is good. But if he's not good, I might. He doesn't say that. There is no condition added, and this is an unconditional covenant. I promise I will never again curse the face of this earth in that way ever again. So, for and notice this, he goes on to describe the condition of man's heart. He knew what was in man. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Yes, I know what man's like. If it was up to them, I'd have to obliterate them. But it's not. I'm promising this, and it's on my character as to whether this is fulfilled or not. And verse 22 expresses it beautifully. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. 
Now, have you ever seen these television programs that show the effect of a nuclear holocaust? Have you ever seen that? And you see the earth, and it's just like a desert with these hot winds blowing all over it. The whole of the climate has been destroyed. That is an absolute impossibility if God is faithful and true. Because God promises this. If there is an earth, and if the earth still exists, I promise there's going to be cold, there's going to be hot, there are going to be seasons. There's going to be seed time, there's going to be harvest time, I promise, and there'll be day and night. Now, that's the promise of the Lord. And if you believe God is faithful and true, that gives you a modicum of peace. It shouldn't send you into apathy, right? No, no. We've really got to make sure that we are peacemakers and so on, and not peacemongers, peacemakers in the true sense. Um, but we can at least have some assurance. If the earth exists, it is never just going to be this sort of Sahara-like scene right the way round. So that's an unconditional covenant. Praise God. Now, what you think about God will tell you what you think about this passage. Is this true or isn't it? It depends on whether God is true or not. There it is. He goes on to uh, expand it. Let's go to chapter 9 and verse 8. Notice this is still an unconditional covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Noah and said to, to his sons with him, and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that goeth out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. It doesn't say here that there aren't going to be local floods. What it says is, never will there be a flood to destroy all the creatures of the earth again. Never. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my rainbow in the cloud. Isn't that lovely? And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Does it depend on whether the earth is good or not? No, it doesn't. It depends on whether God is good or not. And God is true to his word. And this is a lovely thing. God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth and God said unto Noah this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now there are unconditional covenants. The conditional ones always say, I promise I will do this if you, dwelling on the earth, will do this. But if you don't do that, then I won't do this. Now that's a conditional one. These are totally unconditional. All right, the greatest unconditional covenant, I think, in the Bible other than salvation, that is, but I'll come on to that a little later on. The greatest unconditional covenant is that which he made with Abraham. Now, we've got to get this clear. If you're wrong on Israel, you're wrong, period. Okay, let's have a look at it. If we go to Genesis chapter 12, first of all. Genesis in chapter 12. 
Beginning verse 1 to verse 3, here is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I've dealt with this on the tape, but I quickly want to go through it here. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Wasn't that lovely? And then God went on to say he could have the land as well. Notice, no conditions here. He didn't say, well, Abraham, as long as you do this, and as long as your descendants do that, then you'll be all right. doesn't say it. And the day came when Abraham, thinking about this, said, well, I know, he said, verbal agreements aren't worth the paper they're written on, as Sam Goldwyn said, right? And he said, well, I've had it from the mouth of God, but I want it in writing. And so in Genesis 15, a covenant is cut. You remember, don't you, they always had blood when they made a covenant and they used to take hold of an animal, cut it in half, lay the two pieces down with the blood trail in the middle and the two parties making the covenant used to walk through the middle. Right? Look at the question, verse 8. This is impertinence, if ever you've seen it. Abraham says to God this, "Um, Lord God, he said, "Um, whereby shall I know (laughs) that I shall inherit these things? You promised me the land, you promised me all the people. Um, I want it in writing, please, he says. Now, if I'd been God, you know what I'd have done. I'm not God, praise God. And the Lord decided to acquiesce with the request. In this day, by the way, if you made a covenant, you know, with Eleazar or some other chap, you used to go through, and as you walked through, you used to say, well, I will do this and I will do that. Oh, brother Benjamin, I promise I will give you three tons of wheat every year as long as you give me a new tractor every second year. Wonderful. And But if you don't give me a tractor every second year, I'm not going to give you any corn, and I pray your house will be turned into a dunghill. And that's what you used to say, and you used to go through. And he used to walk through and say, well, I promise to give you a tractor every second year, as long as you give me three tons of wheat every year. But if you don't, I'm not going to give you your tractor. And more than that, I will pray that all your wheat fields will be turned into the Sahara or whatever. And you made that type of agreement. Usually two of you did it. And you see, if one of you broke your promise, the other one was free from your promise. Right? We enter into that covenant, don't we, today. Now look look what God did. Now look. Verse 9. He said unto me, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now what happens? Abraham thought that God and he would walk between the pieces. But God knew perfectly well if it, if it depended upon Abraham, he might as well give up now. So he causes Abraham to go to sleep. This is the, one of the first anesthetics in the Bible. The first was actually that given to Adam when Eve was created. Here's another one, right? Mogadon descends upon Abraham. <laughs> and in verse 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. Now he's supposed to sign the covenant, but he's fast asleep. 
And that suits God down to the ground. Because now the covenant depends only on God and it will come to pass. If it depended upon Abraham, forget it. God wouldn't have made it, you see. And what happens? And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety, here are the terms of the uh, promise that God's making, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and they shall serve them, they shall afflict them, 400 years, that came to pass. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. They'll be rich, Abraham, I promise. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Isn't that lovely? Couldn't do it immediately, because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet formed. Not time to kick the Amorites out yet. And then verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And that's God walking between the pieces and Abraham doesn't. Now that's an unconditional covenant. Isn't that lovely? And you'll find this, that whenever God is talking about Israel and giving them a blessing, he always reminds them, by the way, Israel, I'm not blessing you because you're so great. You're not. I'm blessing you because of the covenant that I made all those years ago. An unconditional covenant depends on God and depends on whether he's true and faithful. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's see one of these occasions. This has to do with the existence and continued survival of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, beginning verse 7, they're about to go into the land... God tells them why they're going in. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. This is verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Do you see that? An oath is the vow that you take when you make a covenant. And God said, I made a covenant with your fathers and I'm keeping that covenant and that's why you're going into the land. If it had been up to you, you wouldn't have even approached the land. But it's not. It's up to whether I am a faithful and true God who keeps covenant. And I do. Lovely. Now the survival of Israel depends on God and upon this unconditional covenant. By the way, their blessing is a conditional covenant. Not the same. Israel was told in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, that if they would obey God and follow him, they would be blessed. If they didn't, they would find a cursing coming upon them. And you look at the history of Israel, and you see the trouble that they've had, and you know that the conditional covenant was broken, and they broke it. You see, the Jews have had a very rough ride for 2,000 years. And today they're not in blessing. They're having to fight for their survival. But God said that if they were in blessing, he would fight for them. But they're having to fight. They live in fear of their existence. Why? Because they've broken the conditional covenant of blessing. But listen, for 2,000 years they've survived. Hallelujah. Why? Because God's also got an unconditional covenant with them. Isn't that good news? Most nations have not survived. Right? The, Moabit, the Moabites haven't, for a start. Assyria hasn't survived. But the Jews are still here. God has kept his covenant 
faithfully to Israel. And do you know, they're still around and they're back in the land. That should tell you something about God, that we've got a true and a faithful God who keeps his covenant. Years mean nothing to God. He will be true to his promise. And any Christians today who spiritualize Israel away, I've heard some Christians who say, God's finished with Israel. Listen, if God has finished with Israel, he's broken his word. He's broken his covenant. If he's broken his covenant, he's proved to be a liar, and he's proved to be unfaithful. And if he's broken his word to Israel, he can break his word to you. The good news is, they're back, praise God. All these writers who, over the last centuries, have written books saying, surely the Jews will come back to the land. And they were laughed out of court. Do you know that? They were laughed. People said, oh, rubbish. They would have loved to have seen our day. They really would. 1948 would have been a day of great rejoicing. I just hope the Lord let them into the secret, you know, up there, and there was a great party in heaven. They'd have been thrilled to pieces because God has kept his covenant with them. So do you see, it's in the unconditional covenants that you see that God is faithful and true. And the prophets knew this. They knew that blessing was conditional, but existence, survival, was unconditional. You'll find with the prophets, whenever they saw Israel sinning, they used to warn the people. They used to say, you carry on sinning like this, God would send an army upon you. They'll remove you from, he'll remove you from the land. But you know, they never then went on to say, and he'll dump you and pick up the Welsh instead, which is what he should have done in the first place. <laughs> they won't say anything like that. Won't. You read the prophets and you'll notice they never, ever, ever say about Israel, God will dump you. They don't, they never say it. He'll cut you off from being his people. It's never mentioned by the prophets. Why, what the prophets normally do is to say the judgment is coming. And then they go straight into prophecy about the time of restoration. And God will bring you into a wonderful land. He will reign over you. You will be his people. He will be your God. All the nations will flow unto Zion. And, and so it goes on. They're always full of God's uh, action, what God is going to do. Oh, yes, you can read time after time after time. By the way, even the book of Lamentations, now, if ever you've seen a depressing book, it's the book of Lamentations. Most people don't even know where it is. Written by Jeremiah, and it just follows the book of Jeremiah. It's squeezed in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Can we just go there quickly? <clears throat> right, if you can find it. Go to Lamentations. And chapter 3. Look at this, Lamentations. Oh, by the way, can I tell you the setting of this book? The Jews have just sinned. God has sent a judgment upon them. Nebuchadnezzar and his army have come in. They've destroyed the temple. They've taken all the things out of the temple. And now they're marching the people out of the land and taking them away to Babylon. And do you know what he did? He chained all the people together. And all the Jews had to walk from Israel up to Babylon. And there they are, chained together, and Nebuchadnezzar's army commanders say, right, start marching, and you see the chain gang moving out. And they're all chained down, and the Jews are leaving the land, and they're walking like this. And Jeremiah, who had so impressed Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, he probably led him to Christ, you see, except he didn't know the name, that to the Messiah in those days. Um, Jeremiah sits on the side of the road, and as the chain gang walks past, he, he shouts lamentations at them. That's what this book is. And here's Jeremiah, spends all day just saying the same stuff. 
to these people as they're walking past. And what does he say? He says, you see, he said, it's your sins that have caused all this. You look at the land, it's desolate, he says. It's desolate, your sins have caught you out. Oh, he said, I've seen Jerusalem. And he really goes on and on, the lamentations. But look what's in the middle of the book. Lamentations chapter 3. This is it. Verse 22. <clears throat> it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. Isn't that lovely? What he's saying is, look, Israel, oh, yes, we're in terrible judgment, but you know God's still faithful to you, and you won't be consumed because God's got this unconditional covenant. You'll still last through, all right? So there's hope at the end of this tunnel. And then it goes on, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lovely. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And so he goes on. Oh, it's really wonderful when you see, see this in the middle of Lamentations. Do you see? Marvelous. Yes, the Jews had sin, but their survival doesn't depend on them. It depends upon God. Oh, keep your finger in the place, because I want to just come back here. Can we go to Romans chapter 3? Because writing about this whole thing... <clears throat> Paul makes a marvellous statement. One we must remember for ourselves. I'll be coming back to the area of Lamentations in just a moment, so don't lose it. Romans 3, verse 1 onwards. Paul asks this question, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because that unto them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Well, say the Jews were unfaithful to God. Say they sinned and broke God's conditional covenant. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, he says. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Oh yes, so the Jews have broken their side of the bargain. Okay, they might have done, but God won't break his side. Isn't that lovely? Every man can let God down. God won't let anyone down. He's faithful and he's true. I had a most marvelous revelation of just this. You know, I'm uh, preparing for uh, some studies I've got to give in a few weeks' time called The Temple, God's Dwelling Place. And this is at a conference that I'm speaking at. And you know, I like to get fresh manna from the Lord. I like fresh crusty bread from heaven for most of the studies that I do. Most people have never heard this material before. And God is so lovely, the master baker, and these uh, loaves come crashing down into the camp, you know, as Gideon saw. Really wonderful. And uh, I spent a, a day just praying and asking God for revelation about the temple. And the Lord took me to a passage that I've covered in my King Jesus series, in Ezekiel chapter 1, and I saw something I'd never seen before. Can we just go? Now, it's just after Lamentations. Aren't I kind to you? Ezekiel and chapter 1. The book of Ezekiel, you know, is a, a wonderful book and fairly easy. The trouble is that people can't get through chapter 1. And they come along to the book of Ezekiel and they trip over chapter 1. They think, I may as well give up. And so they give up. Now, don't give up. Oh, yeah, but it's full of cherubim and wheels and wheels within wheels, and eyes on the rims of the wheels, and what's it all about? 
you see? Well, on the King Jesus series, how many of you have heard the King Jesus series here? Very, very few. I've actually dealt with this. Let me just tell you what it is. The cherubim were the angels who guarded the throne room of God. Now, that should give you a clue. And there are, there are uh, the cherubim standing by, and by each of the cherubs, there's a wheel that comes down, you see? And people scratch their heads and say, what's all this? A wheel. And then you find there's a throne above the wheels, and there's a voice from the throne speaking. And most people scratch their heads. Now look, it's easy. In the ancient world, if you ever had an emperor, the emperor not only had his throne at home in his capital city, he used to have a throne that he took with him, you see? And this throne was carried everywhere. Now they didn't have, you know, a, a royal launch or anything like that to carry the throne. They used to travel everywhere in chariots. And so this second throne used to have wheels on it, four wheels. It was a chariot throne. And wherever the king went, the chariot throne used to come, and he used to come into one of his uh, territories, right? And the throne used to be wheeled out, and he used to sit on top of this throne with wheels on. And his guardians used to be, his bodyguard used to be around him. Now that's all you've got described in Ezekiel chapter 1. That's it. God is seen as the emperor of the whole world, and he is the one who rules in every nation. That's it. Okay, what about the wheels within wheels? Ah, well, that's easy. You see, the thing about chariots is they have fixed wheels, and once they start going in one direction, it's hard to turn them in another direction. But the thing about God's throne is it can move in any direction. It's got wheels pointing in every single direction. It can go up and down, sideways, diagonally, whichever way he wants to go. He is total lord of everything. And you'll find this is a picture of King Jesus as the emperor sitting on his throne giving directives. Lovely. And Ezekiel, remember, was the prophet who went into captivity with the Jews. Now, in chapter 1, he sees this vision of God as king. And they needed it. But where does he see it? Where does he see this chariot with God sitting as king? Read verse 1. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Chiba, or Kiba there. What's this? Do you know God, when the Jews were removed from the land and went to Babylon, God picked up his throne and he set it down in Babylon to be among his people. Now, who's that? That's our God, faithful and true. Right? Even though they're out of fellowship, he wasn't going to leave them, he was going to stick with them. And so he got on his movable chariot and he, he sat in the middle of where they were. If you're not sure of that, go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Even if you got through Ezekiel 1, you bump into Ezekiel 10. <clears throat> it's the same vision as Ezekiel 1. Right? Now the temple's destroyed, God's presence is lifted from the temple, and now it's among his people in Babylon. And it says, look, verse 20, he sees a living creature. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river of Kiba, and I knew that they were cherubim. It's in Babylon that God has presenced himself. And why is he there? The answer is found in Ezekiel 11. Go to Ezekiel 11, and verse 13, where Ezekiel sees the wretched state of the people, and he asks this question, he says, oh, 
And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Now look at this. Then fell I down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? See what he's asking? God, is Israel totally finished now as your people? Is this it? Is it curtains now so that no Jews are going to exist anymore? And God answers it. He's right there among them. And down in verse 16, look what he says. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them off, sorry, though I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Isn't that beautiful? And God is saying, yes, they're out of fellowship. They've been taken into captivity, but I'm still going to look after them. And it's a warning to the Babylonians. Listen, the day you become anti-Semitic and try and destroy my people, I'm going to destroy you, which is what he did a little later on. And do you see here, we've got the God who's faithful and true and the God of unconditional covenant. That's just a little revelation I had. Right? So there we are. I share that with you tonight. It's lovely. But always, whenever you see covenant, it depends on God being faithful and true. And the Jews are still around today. And listen, as long as there's an earth, there are going to be Jews. Isn't that wonderful? When Jesus comes again, Israel's still on the face of this earth. Praise the name of the Lord. We've got a covenant-keeping God. Incidentally, that's why the Psalms, you know, are so full of praise. When David wrote the Psalms of praise, he had in mind this faithful God who keeps covenant. I'm only going to read one part of one Psalm, or two parts of one Psalm. That's all. Let's just go to the book of Psalms. Let's go to 89. Now, we used to sing... Psalm 89 and verse 1. Haven't sung it for a long time. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. Do you remember that one? I will sing very old. It's lovely. Here's David. Now, why is he singing? What is the thing that makes him sing? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's veracity. Yes, he Perhaps they never heard the English word veracity, but that's why he's singing, because God's faithful and true. That's why. Verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. And God, this is God. You know, don't you, that the Psalms were sung and that you used to have a chorus and a lead singer who represented God, and another singer who represented David. And so you had these different ones. One day in the fellowship, we must put on some of these psalms. It would be thrilling, wouldn't it, to put them on, and we'd understand. Well, now the singer who plays God comes on, and he says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever, and build up thy throne to all generations, Selah. Selah is a musical term, means count five beats before going on. That's what it means. And that's why most people say pause and think about that. Yes, that's what it's for. So you go one, two, three, four, five, and off you go, the next one. Super. 
And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? There's why he's singing. Lovely. Then he relates it to his seed. Over in verse 29, God speaking again. Psalm 89, verse 29. His seed also, says God, will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. That's an unconditional covenant, the Davidic covenant that was made. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, look at this, they break their side. Oh dear, what's going to happen? If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, he says, even though they're going to be judged, even though I will smack their bottoms, even though I will put chastisement upon their shoulders, nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. There it is. This is God, faithful and true. I won't allow them to be destroyed. Marvelous stuff. Whenever you see the words loving kindness, by the way, they're one Hebrew word, chesed, in the Hebrew. Chesed. Chesed is covenant love. I promise, he says, my covenant love I will never take away. Psalm 63 says it. David says, thy loving kindness is better than life. To know that God's got a covenant with me that he's not going to break. That's better than life as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I'm so thrilled, he says, about that. Why is he so thrilled? Because his loving kindness lasts beyond life, even into death, as our dear brother David Watson now knows in full reality that God is the God who is faithful to his word. Oh, Lord, thy loving kindness is better than life itself to me. Which would you rather have, by the way? Would you rather have life or would you rather have loving kindness? Well, loving kindness will see you through any situation. Life may not. You see, life may depart from you before you can get to any situation. But his loving kindness will never be taken away from you. This is the promise of God. And it's lovely. It's Jesus, isn't it, that demonstrates God's loving kindness better than anything else. You remember in Isaiah 7.14, it actually says, A virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. Lovely. The son will come through a virgin. 700 years later, what happens? At the right time, Jesus Christ comes to the earth. It took 700 years for God to fulfill his word, but he fulfilled it. And when Jesus came in his life, he was the one who fulfilled God's covenant to all the peoples around. He said, I am the way and I am the truth And I'm the life. I'm true, he says as well. And by dying on the cross, all those people who who over thousands of years have put their trust in God suddenly found that he'd met them in full in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus today, you know, is still faithful and true. 
He's up there, and every day your name is mentioned by Jesus before the Father. And Satan comes, and he attacks you, and he criticizes you. He says, why? Even so-and-so thinks they're useless. And Jesus says, I'm the one who's fighting for them. Today, he's been faithful and true to you. That's how marvelous he is. And you know what happens, don't you, at the second advent? You remember? Jesus returns. We won't turn to it. But in Revelation 19, verse 11, he returns on a white horse, and on his thigh is written the name, Faithful and True. Very beautiful indeed. Jesus is the one who truly is faithful and true, as far as we're concerned. All right, so here's our God, faithful and true, a covenant keeper, the one who makes promises and keeps them. What does it mean to those of us who are believers? What does this do for me? The fact that I've got a God like that. Oh, it does wonderful things for me. Absolutely wonderful things. First of all, it gives me complete security. Absolute security. If God has promised me something, it will come to pass. I know that it will come to pass. If God has said something about me, I can trust him. Do you know he's promised that I will be resurrected from the dead? He's promised me that. Ah, but how do I know? Oh, yeah, he might change his mind, you know, and say, well, I don't know if I could stand prize for all eternity. That's what he might, oh, dear, oh, dear, what's going to happen? Lord, will you or won't you? Will you, won't you? Lord, I don't know whether you will. But God says, yes, I will. More than that, he's promised to give me a resurrection body. Am I going to get that? Definitely I am. Does it depend on me? No, it doesn't. Depends on him. He's promised it. Wonderful. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more crying. Is that true? Yes, it's true, because he's promised it. You can believe it. Whatever promise is made for your life, oh, he may not work according to your timetable. You know, we say, God, excuse me, yesterday you promised such and such, and it's not come yet. Well, God is slightly slower than that, you know, and a watch promise never boils. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Absolutely true. Sometimes God gives you a promise, and you have to bury it away in your heart, and suddenly it springs up, and you say, God, you've been faithful to me. I didn't realize, and now it's come. And these things grow by the power of God, you know, Wonderful. So we can trust him. And we can trust him absolutely for our salvation. I have to tell you this. Some people think salvation is a conditional covenant. You know? Well, listen, folks, they say. If you overcome, you might just make it. Might just make it. And that means you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. And if you don't do this, I'm sorry, old chap. You're out on your ear. But God's standing there saying, ha, you didn't make it, did you? And off you go. I tell you this, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I believe, as you all know, that my salvation is an unconditional covenant. The moment I believed, he entered into covenant with me, saying, Price, I know what a fool you are. I know you're totally incapable. And so I've decided that I'm going to do it for you. And I promise you're going to make it. Now, isn't that lovely? And you know, that gives me peace. When I was first converted, I actually mixed with people who told me that I would lose my salvation, you know, and especially if I committed the unforgivable sin. And I used to say, well, what's the unforgivable sin? Well, we're not sure. <laughs> and, and I used to think, well, I'm sure, whatever it is, I do it, probably, you see? 
And very often I used to say, I've committed the unforgivable sin again, Lord. And this was the story of my life. And you know, I spent so much time worrying about this. And someone told me I'd missed the rapture. <laughs> oh dear. If I didn't do this and I didn't do that, and I got into a terrible state because I thought, I'm not doing this and I can't do that and God, why did you save me in the first place? You know, making a nervous wreck of me. Seven out of ten Christians in mental hospitals today are there because basically they think God isn't capable of looking after them unto the point of salvation. And then all of a sudden it dawned upon me, you know, that God knew what a fool I was when he saved me. I mean, I got saved because I couldn't run my own life. Fancy, some people actually think that you get saved because you're totally incapable right, you're found in the gutter, God picks you up, and then you have to start living not just a, a slightly victorious life, you've got to live a totally victorious life in order to get there, with God marking you off. Oh, well, no, failed that one, but passed that one, yes. Well, you've got to get 65%, and then the gates open for one second, an eighth of an inch, and you'll squeeze through. Ah, oh, I was the most relieved person I really was. What finally convinced me of this, you know, was when I realized that God so loved me that if there was any chance that I could be lost, he would have killed me off there and then on the spot. He would have killed me on the spot, wouldn't he? I mean, the minute I said, Lord, I believe on you and I put my trust in you, God would say, I didn't leave him. I just didn't leave him. If I leave him down there, he's going to get lost. And God, do you know, God would have said, right, kill him off and up with... And you know, there'd be no witnesses down here. There'd be no church or anything. We'd go straight to be with the Lord immediately. It's not like that. If God knew the Jews were incapable, he knew you were incapable as well. If he gave them an unconditional covenant, he's given you one. Can I show you two passages which talk about the fact we're going to make it at the second advent and then relate it to faithfulness in the next verse? The first isn't as clear as the second. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, first of all. Right? 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, <clears throat> and halfway through verse 7 is where I'm going to begin. Dr. Miles Smith strikes again. You remember, he's the chap that put the uh, chapter headings and the verse headings in, and he keeps getting them wrong. And in the middle of verse 7, it would have been lovely if he'd begun a verse here, but he didn't. The German Bible actually has slightly different verses to ours. It's very confusing sometimes, but I think it's a bit better than ours. Now, look what it says. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end. Isn't that lovely? He's going to come and he'll confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Follow straight on. By whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, you're going to make it to the end. He'll confirm you to the end, and he's faithful. He'll do it. Now, that's not as clear as the next one. The next one's lovely. If ever I'm asked to put a verse in someone's uh, visitor's book or something like that, you know, the verse I always put is the verse I'm about to quote. They sometimes ask for a little rhyme as well. You know, and I always put about the bunny has a shiny nose, but that's another story. Now, in... <laughs> In 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> we'll get hundreds of letters after this saying, what is that thing about the bunny with the shiny nose? 
You know it, don't you? And this he cannot mend because his little powder puff is at the other end. <laughs> However, now that saved me about 80 letters now. Now 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5, verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. And this is lovely. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Right. Wholly sanctified. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that called you who also will do it. What a wonderful statement. Praise God. Now that's what I'm talking about. There is another statement as well that is made of this, which relates to the fact, let all men be liars, but God will be true. Let God be true, but all men liars. And it's found in 2 Timothy, chapter 2. I've dealt with this in an earlier tape. Verse 11. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 11, 12 and 13. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Amen. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, I'll come back to that in just a second. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And many people concentrate on this phrase, if we deny him, he will deny us. This is the verse that's quoted, you know. Now listen, you ever deny Christ, he'll deny you on that day. The trouble is, what they didn't tell you is, there are three Greek words which are translated deny. Two of them mean to actually say you don't know this person, like Peter did. And by the way, Peter made it. Isn't that lovely? Peter denied Christ and he still made it. This word is the third word. And this word means this. It means to deny someone what is truly theirs. That's what it means. Right? Now the queen has a right to expect honor from us, but some people deny her that honor. They're not denying she's queen. They just deny her that honor. You see? My little boy has a jar of sweets. If he's a naughty boy, I deny him a sweet. But they're my sweets, Daddy, I know. But you're my son. Right? And who bought them in the first place? That's what I said. And he doesn't get it. Now that's denying. Now what am I doing? Am I denying he's my son? No, I'm not. I'm owning him as my son. The mo you know, when he's... <laughs> and he's a bad lad at times. I don't know where he got it from. But he's a bad chap. And sometimes he's there. And I say, it's monstrous the way you've acted. Monstrous. Right? It's like saying, you are a monster. And that's how he's acting. Now, what do I do? Well, these are his sweets, but I deny him his sweets. Now, that's what it's saying. Listen, if God has a right to expect certain things from you, if you deny him that which he should have, he will deny you that which you should have. Do you know it is your right to have peace and to have blessing in your life? If you do not give God his due, you will not have the peace that is yours. Now, that's what that's talking about. It also means this, that if you deny God room in your life, you'll miss out on the crowns when they're given up in heaven. That is not a statement of loss of salvation. It's not. 
In fact, the next part that follows this absolutely confirms it's not loss of salvation. Why? If we believe not. Now, here's a person who's believed, and all of a sudden they doubt. And they come and they say, I don't know whether God does exist. I've gone into complete doubt over this. If we believe not, but listen, God has to remain faithful. Lovely. He keeps his side of the bargain. And how many of us are in this room, myself included, who have been through a time since we were converted when suddenly everything seemed to go from us? And yet, isn't it wonderful? We soon came back and we saw that we may have been faithless, but he was faithful to us. That's a statement of unconditional covenant. It's good news. Praise God. And by the way, the whole book of Hosea is about this. You remember, don't you? Hosea, go marry a prostitute. She's going to be unfaithful to you. And Hosea marries this prostitute who's terribly unfaithful. And God says to Israel, that's what you're like with me. Terribly unfaithful. But Hosea stuck with the woman. And he stuck with her until no man wanted her. Until she was paying her lovers. You see? And Hosea still goes back and says, well, I want you. Oh, but I'm a hag. Yes, but I want you. Oh, but I'm no good to anyone. But I want you. And God says, Hosea, that's the message to Israel. They've gone and played the harlot with every nation until no nation wants them, but I still want them. Good news. That's a covenant-keeping God of faithfulness. And you know, this means grace. And the trouble is with us, we don't like grace very much. We want to earn it. You can't earn this. Oh, veracity is the most wonderful attribute. God will always be faithful to me, even during those times when I seem to lose faith in him. And you know, the lovely thing is, if you believe that, suddenly you find all the tension gone, and you can believe him. It takes all the tension out of everything. Underneath are those everlasting arms. Praise God. So it doesn't matter how long the trouble lasts, God will still be there to catch you down below. Two more scriptures on that that confirm it. Hebrews 10, <coughs> Hebrews 10, 23. And this is against what is natural within us. When we go through difficulty, very often we... We come into doubt with God. But this is saying, no, don't. Don't doubt God. You need God at this point. So it says this. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Oh, it seems as if it's not coming to pass at the moment, but you just stick with it. God's faithful, right? He'll fulfill it, not you. He's the one who's going to do it. And last of all, one piece of four. One piece of four. And verse 19. Wherefore, it says, Let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And it's God, therefore, that's got us in the palm of his hand. So do you see, the first thing that veracity means for me is total security. But there's a second thing it means for every Christian. And that is, it's a challenge to us. Because veracity means that when God says something, he means it. And so we have got to start being people of our word. Both James and Jesus say this, don't they? They say this, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And we're not very good at this. I'm not very good. My wife often says, do you want a biscuit? No. And then 10 seconds later, darling, I think I will have a biscuit. My no is yes. Funny, isn't it? And then my yes turns into a no sometimes as well. Would you like a banana? No, thank you. And you reach out for one. <laughs> Funny. 
we've got to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay in, in all our dealings with one another. Do you know, God hates covenant breakers. Do you know that? And we've got to see that we are constantly in covenant with our brothers and sisters. And we've got to aim at keeping our word. It's so hard. If you say, I'll go and visit someone. All right, leave it open-ended and you'll go and visit them. And that's good. But if you say, I'll go and visit you next week, make sure it's next week you go and visit them. Oh, I'll give you your book back tomorrow. Make sure you keep it. We've got to be like God as far as faithful and, and true is concerned and try and be people of our word. You see, the whole society in which we live, they're covenant breakers. Did you know that? You, have you ever read that list of uh, features of the end times given in Romans? Have you? One of the things, you know that they'll be disobedient to parents. Should we just quickly read it? It's in um, Romans chapter 1, right at the end. Romans 1, 29. And it's true of our society today. You read this. Terrible. Verse 29 onwards, and think of our present society. Being filled, it says, Romans 1, 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, true, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. That's the day in which we live. You know, because there's no pleasure in sin, no lasting pleasure, so they have to go a degree worse to get more pleasure. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, there it is, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, and so on. Do you know there was a time when an Englishman's word was his bond? If an Englishman said he'd do it, he'd do it. True. You could sometimes say to an Englishman, if you arrested him, and you, uh, if a German caught you, or an Indian caught you, or one of the enemy caught you, right? You could sometimes uh, uh, have a case where an Englishman would say, oh, I won't try and escape, you can just leave me. An Englishman would actually stay put in that room without anyone guarding him, because he felt his word was his bond. He wouldn't let, let them go, you see? The Germans also had the same code of practice in certain ways, which they broke. But that's not true today. They're covenant breakers. God hates covenant breakers. Do you know that's true? That's why he hates divorce, because marriage is a covenant. He can't stand divorce. It's awful to him. And yet today, oh, it's a light thing. You know, in America now, you dictate the terms of the marriage. And there's even talk now that they'll give you a form for divorce at the time you go through the marriage ceremony to save giving you one later. Terrible. We have a rule going through now. One year's enough. And then you can get a quick divorce. That is the rule of a covenant breaker. Ah, we ought to rebel against what's going on in the world. I wonder how many of you know this much neglected psalm, Psalm 15. That gives the Christian point of view over covenants. Let's go to Psalm 15. Very short psalm, and it asks the question, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Who are the righteous? Who are the upright? And then it defines some of them. Verse 2. Here they are, and this is a definition. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness. 
and speaketh the truth in his heart. Three, he that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Do you remember that I spoke to our fellowship on poison in your mouth? And in that I talked about the sins of the tongue. And I still find, you know, as I find in every group, there are still people who won't do it. I dared people to be of the ilk, to say, you are gossiping, you are spreading evil, and that which is negative, and to say, I won't put up with it, and I won't be in your company if you do it. We still don't have brave people, enough brave people around. God demands it of us, those that will not backbite. You see? I'm not going over that tape again, but we've got to listen to it. It's important. Then it says, I did that ages ago, didn't I? But we've got to keep it in our mind. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoureth them that fear the Lord. And this one, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. If you swear, you take an oath. This is someone who enters into a covenant and even though it hurts him, he keeps that covenant. Have you ever done that? You've promised to pick someone up and suddenly the whole day gets filled up. Oh, and it's completely filled up. My wife and I are doing this all the time. We overdo it, you know. And so we have to squeeze things in to make sure we do it because we try and be people of our word. And it's jolly hard. This says, blessed is the man who makes a covenant and then finds it to his hurt but still sticks with that covenant. Blessed are the couple who find marriage difficult but they're still going to stick with it. Blessed are the people who, when they get married, think this is a terrible disaster. Have I married the wrong woman? Have I married the wrong man? Yet you say, it is a covenant and I stick with it. Blessed are they, but they're very few and far between today. But this is the person who dwells on the holy hill of the Lord. Verse 5, he that putteth not out his money to usury, right, specifically among the saints, of course, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be removed. So there's the challenge, and what a challenge it is. Oh dear, oh dear, if only we could be more like this. Lord, we just have to say that we're not like this, and just help us to be like it, in Jesus' name. So that's what it means to the believer. What does it mean to the unbeliever? It means this, that when God promises judgment, a judgment there is going to be. When God says that the soul that sinneth it shall die, the soul that sins is going to die. And the unbeliever has got to face up to the fact that God is true to his promises, whether the promises are good or whether they're bad. So that's it. And that is something that every person has got to face up to in this room. Nevertheless, God is patient. He's waiting for those to call upon his name. Bless his wonderful name. I just uh, don't turn to this, but... Uh, Here's a, a verse. This is the last verse I can give in this series for the unbeliever. But in Isaiah 30, verse 18, And therefore will the Lord wait, he says, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. And that's it. Reject that mercy, and the judgment is surely coming. All right, all that remains now is to see that the Father has veracity, the Son has veracity as part of his character, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, as I've done this in every single talk and every single attribute, all I'm doing really is demonstrating the Trinity to you. Do you remember our God is one in essence, but three in personality? Do you remember that? One in essence, 
In other words, the Father is like this, the Son is like it, and the Holy Spirit's like it. And do you remember, we've seen in every single attribute that they're all like it. So let's have a look at the Father, first of all. The Gospel of John is the main source of veracity. John 7, 28. John 7, 28, a clear statement that God is faithful and true. The Gospel of John 7, verse 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. But I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. God the Father is true. In John 17, 3, it's also repeated. John 17, 3. <clears throat> And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So the Father is faithful and true. The Son is also faithful and true. Uh, first of all, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The Gospel of John... Chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lovely statement. And 1 John also confirms that. 1 John 5. 5 and verse 20, right at the end, of 1 John. One John five twenty, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There's a lovely statement of the fact that the Son is true and faithful. And what about the Holy Spirit? Well, again in 1 John 5, verse 6. 1 John 5, verse 6, this is one of many times that John calls him the Spirit of truth. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. You'll find that, John 14, John 15, and John 16 as well. Okay, there is our God. I've had time only to deal with ten attributes. Who is he? What's he like? Well, we can begin to answer the question. Let's just go through the attributes that I've dealt with. Our God is sovereign. True. Our God is absolute righteousness. Our God is absolute justice. Our God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's eternal, he's love, he's immutable, and he's veracity. And all of those present the most wonderful God that you could ever wish to have, and how thrilling it is to know him. I want to just end the whole series now by just having a, look, a quick look at some of the names by which God calls himself in the Bible. Because a name to the Hebrews was very important. A name expressed who the person was. And I've written some names up 
in the, uh, from the Bible, if we get to know our God by his name, indeed, we'll know a great deal. <clears throat> Let me just go through some of these. Right, now, first of all, three major names. The first name is Jehovah, or Yahweh, depending on how you pronounce it. No one knows how to pronounce it. Praise God, it's one of the lovely things about these ancient languages. You have your own go at it. Jehovah, sometimes shortened to Yah, Jah, sometimes used in the Bible. When you see Jah, J-A-H, it's the same as Jehovah. And as far as we know, Jehovah means the self-existent one, or I am that I am. Who are you? Well, I'm who I am, says God. No other description given. There it is. Well, I'm just me, Jehovah. The second name is one we saw in the Trinity, the plural name Elohim, sometimes shortened to El, E-L, or the singular form Eloah. Whenever you use E-L-O-A-H. Elohim, El, Eloah, they're all the same name, the name of God. And that means the strong one who is faithful to his promise. Amen. What a lovely name to have. The third major name is Adonai or Adon, A-D-O-N. I assume you know how to spell Jehovah, Elohim, and Adonai. Singular, Adon. And that simply means master. Now, every other name of God contains one of these names. There are a few combinations of them. I'll leave this up afterwards for you. There's Jehovah Elohim, Lord God. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 3. Adonai Jehovah, the same. And then sometimes you get one of the main names of God with another word added at the end. And it's lovely to know these lovely words. For example, Jehovah Sabaoth, S-A-B-A-O-T-H. Jehovah Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see it in your Bible, it's Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The next one's well known. El Shaddai, or Elohim Shaddai. There it is. Almighty God, El Shaddai. Another one, El Olam, O-L-A-M, El Olam, the everlasting God. See, the use of these basic words with a word added. Another lovely one, El Elion, El Elion, E-L-Y-O-N. And that means the most high, El Elion. And then we come to some names that are very familiar to us. First one, Jehovah Jireh. Lovely. I've translated it here. Jireh is J-I-R-E-H. Jehovah Jireh. I've translated it as the Lord will provide, but it's lovely to translate it in other ways. The Lord, who is more than enough, is my favorite one. Whatever you need, he's more than enough to cover it. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Rapha, R-A-P-H-A, the Lord who heals, the Lord my healer. Jehovah 
Rafah. Next one, Jehovah Nisai or Nisi Nisai, Jehovah Nisai, the Lord our banner, N I S I. And I've just written down two more. First one you know well, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace, Jehovah Shalom. Last of all, David's favorite, I think, Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord my shepherd. Now there we are, R-A-A-H, Ra'ah. So there it is. Here are the names that our God goes by. Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, Yah, El, Eloah, Ad Adon. Jehovah Elohim, Adonai Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth, El Shaddai, El Olam, El Elyon, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisai, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Ra'ah, and many, many others as well. Well, he's the most wonderful God. For us, we do all things in another name. We do all things in the name of Jesus Christ. For the fullness of our God bodily dwelleth in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. My prayer for you all is that through the study of these uh, char the characteristics of God, that you'll come to know him, and to know him is life eternal and life forevermore. God bless you all. Amen. Amen.